Well, good morning, guys. How are we? Hope you're doing good at home. I hope uh, you found things to keep yourself entertained. Uh, let's go Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. Um, if you don't have a Bible, find one just real fast. Uh, maybe you got one laying around the house or something. Uh, we'll put the text up on your screen in just a moment. Uh, but here's the deal. Uh, there's just something special about holding God's Word uh, in your own hands. And so if you have a Bible or you're close to a Bible, grab that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, I'd love to try to fix that. And so Call me or email me here at the office sometime this week, and maybe we can try to send you one. I don't know. We've got some laying around here. We can do something with them. Um, but we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Like, we want you to, for real, know God. That's what we're about here. And so we're constantly pushing you to, to be digging into the word as much as you can. And, and let's just be real honest. Like, you're probably looking for some constructive things to do right now. So how about we read our Bible? Maybe God will use that. I don't know. Um, we also recommend around here using an app, an iPhone app or an Android app called the Version Bible app. Uh, we uh, put out a bunch of reading plans every single year. We got reading plans going on right now for uh, reading through the whole Bible and reading uh, specific things in the month of March and all those kinds of things. And so grab that app and then check our social media and our email announcements for how to join our groups and read along with us. So we have been working since last Easter to, on a series through the book of Romans. Uh, Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at the city of Rome. That's why it gets its name Romans. That's why we call it that. We believe that he wrote that letter about 56 AD from the city of Corinth. Uh, and it's, it's essentially a missionary support letter. He wants to take the gospel past Rome. He's in Corinth. He's been hanging out in Judea and Asia Meyer. And now he's in Greece. And he wants to take the gospel westward. He wants to take the gospel on past Rome and into Spain. And so he writes this letter to the church at Rome. He's never been there by this point, but he knows what's going on there. He's heard good things. And so he writes this letter to ask them for help to get to Spain. But he, he doesn't just set up a GoFundMe and he doesn't start dropping his, his Venmo handle on everybody. No, instead Paul casts vision. He casts vision. Romans is a masterpiece, logical argument for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up people to take that gospel to the nations. And we've been calling this series for the last year, Just and Justifier. For one, because those are titles that God gives to himself in Romans chapter 3. But secondly, well, because this letter has exactly one character to celebrate. God is the one who is both perfectly just. He, he gives to all exactly what they deserve. He has never and he will never fail to act justly. The, the problem with that eternally consistent truth, though, is that as soon as you and I start getting honest about what sinners actually deserve from this holy God, the outlook doesn't look so great. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> Paul makes it clear in in, in chapter 6 of this letter, that the wages of sin, the thing rightfully earned, owed to us for our sin, is death. Nobody likes to talk about death. But we've said it multiple times throughout this series now, and it bears repeating again. God's wrath 
It's not some antiquated vestigial doctrine of a bygone era. It's not, not something cooked up by those in power who are seeking to control others. No, no, God's wrath is actually the exact appropriate response to an infinitely, of an infinitely holy God. It's the appropriate response of an infinitely holy God towards cosmic treason and injustice. It's owed to us. God will give to all exactly what they deserve. He is perfectly just. But, but Paul's also made it clear that, that God is not simply just. He's not merely just. He's also at the very same time, in the very same moment, in full completion, the great justifier. He makes a way where there was no way. Guilty sinners are declared innocent. Innocent. If you're thinking to yourself right about now, well, that sounds like a failure of justice. You're right, it is. At least under normal circumstances. To declare guilty people innocent is a massive failure of justice. It's the exact opposite of justice. So how can God be both? Right? Does he just waffle back and forth between one and the other? Does he pick one on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and pick the other on Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday? Is that how God operates? No. He's got to be both at the very same time. And so how is God both? How can God both be just and be merciful toward sinners? And the answer to that question, that massive theological question, is an incredibly simple answer. It's the cross of Christ. It's the cross. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I were ever capable of living. And he died on the cross as a sinless substitute. A willing and righteous sacrifice for your sin. The death of Jesus on the cross is the cosmic moment where divine justice and divine mercy meet head on. The debt for your sin against God is paid for by God. Just and justifier. And so over the last several months, Paul has walked us through what the what, the why, and the how of this massive thing. He's, he's built his, his logical, reasonable gospel skyscraper. He's built it from the ground up, and he's, he's answered all the theological questions that come stemming out of this thing, and, and, and he's laid out the, the practical, real-world conclusions for how we live in light of these massive truths, for how we live in light of what God has done and is doing. And so now, well, now it's time to end the letter we get to end the letter, guys. Hey, guys, we're going to finish Romans today. Yeah. Romans chapter 16. Look at verse 1 with me. Paul says this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. All right, so there's no such thing as a Roman Empire postal service. Paul can't simply lick a stamp and drop this thing in a box and expect it to get where it's supposed to go. And so if you write a letter in the first century, you've either got to hire someone to carry that letter for you, or you've got to find someone that you dearly trust who's already going in that direction. So say hello to Phoebe. Phoebe, 
She's commended by Paul as, as a sister, as a servant, and as a patron, we're told, from the church at Sincre. Sincre was a, a town, a, a port city, a smaller town than Corinth, but it was just a little east of Corinth. Paul's in Corinth when he's writing this. Uh, so there's a church in Corinth. It's the big city, the business center. Sincre is the port town just a little bit east of there. And so stuff comes in through Sincre and through Corinth and then out the other side to get across the isthmus. All right? And so th- there's a church in Corinth and there's a church in Sincre. And Phoebe, we are told, was an active participant, a worker, and a benefactor of both Paul and of this church. She's headed to Rome for some kind of business, it seems. And so she carries this letter on Paul's behalf to the church there. And think for just a second how massive of a responsibility that is. I mean, just picture it in your head. I mean, just by earthly standards, we're talking about the only copy, probably, of a handwritten letter carried about uh, 800-ish miles over land and sea. That's a big ask. And you add to that the fact that, that this is happening in a political and a religious climate where Phoebe is very much looked down upon. Phoebe has a big job to do. But then you add the spiritual layer to this, right? We're talking about a letter from an apostle. An apostle, speaking on behalf of God. Paul's words are supposed to be God's words. What Phoebe is asked to do here could not be a greater honor. It's a massive undertaking and a high calling. Paul trusts her enough to hand her the word of God to this church and to carry it on his behalf. He commends her to them. He commends her. Now, some of your translations, if you have like an NIV, New American Standard, not a New American Standard, New International Version. If you have an NIV, it'll say, instead of a servant, it'll call her a deaconess. The reason for that is because the Greek word right there is the word diakonos, which we transliterate into the word deacon. And so there is a church office, a leadership position in the church of deacon. And depending upon the way your church is structured, that's either seen as a a group of servants for a a specific task within the church, or that's an office uh, that's kind of used as an elder-type position that carries spiritual authority. They're given a shepherding responsibility, and and that's us. That's, That's how we here at Nashua Baptist structure ourselves. We give our deacons a shepherding role through our family ministries. And in large part, That divide of workers or shepherds, it usually dictates who is allowed to serve in that role. So not only is there a lot of debate among Christian circles about what exactly a deacon is, but you best believe that there's a whole bunch of debate regarding who exactly Phoebe is. Does she or does she not carry the title of deaconess at her home church in Sincre? And the answer is that we don't know. We, we, we don't know. We, we have no real idea. But there are two things that we do know. Two very important things. One, there's a reason why the more literal translations, uh, like the English Standard Version that we're reading today, or uh, the King James, or the New American Standard Version, there's a reason why those more literal translations render that word, diakonos here, as servant rather than deacon. And it's because the word diakonos is all over the Bible all over the New Testament, and most of the time, it just means servant, because diakonos means servant. It's used all over the New Testament in places where nobody's talking at all about the church office. They're talking about servants. 
Even here in the, in the book of Romans. Uh, by this point in the letter, Paul has uh, pointed to both governmental leaders in chapter 13 and to Jesus himself in chapter 15, and he's called both of them a diakonos. He, he's not talking about Jesus and Nero fulfilling church offices there. He's talking about them being a servant of God. And so whenever you're translating something and a word has been used multiple times throughout a document in one specific way, you need a very, very good reason to translate it a different way the next time you come to it. That's how translation works. You need a reason to change course. And so, yes, uh, the the word is diakonos, and and that word is sometimes transliterated as deacon when we're talking about church offices in, in some of the New Testament letters, but that word is normally just translated servant most of the rest of the time. And then, so there's nothing in this text that specifically changes the subject to church leadership. And so there's nothing in this text that would necessitate translating it differently. She's a servant. But I told you there were two things that we know. The second thing, the second thing about this situation that desperately needs to be pointed out is that Phoebe is highly valued. Highly valued. See, what all the arguing about in Christian circles and theological circles, the, all the arguing about whether she is or is or is not a deacon, what all of that arguing seems to always miss is the fact that the Apostle Paul adores her. He adores her. He trusts her. She's proven her worth time and time again. God has used her in gigantic ways, both as a servant and as a benefactor of not only her church, but also of Paul's ministry. It's clear here in the text that ministry is happening because of Phoebe's faithfulness. Because of it. And could any compliment from the lips of man ever be greater than the Apostle Paul pointing at you and go, that's my girl. Trust her. Welcome her. Give her whatever she needs. That's my girl. Treat her well. I commend her to you. Phoebe is highly valued. And she is highly honored. Oh, men of Nashua Baptist Church, let our Phoebes be treated no differently. Honor them. Commend them. Equip them. Celebrate them. But as great as Phoebe is, we're also just getting started. Paul has some people he wants to say hi to. So look what he says next in verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Call a time out there. All right, so these are two names that you just might recognize, Aquila and his wife Prisca, but probably most everybody's more familiar with her nickname Priscilla, right? Aquila and Priscilla. And what a couple they were. We see them for the very first time in the Bible in the book of Acts in chapter 18, where Luke tells us that upon arriving in Corinth for the very first time, Paul met a young couple there who had just fled from Italy because Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. Hey, does that sound familiar to people who have been like following along this whole series? They were Romans who had fled out of Rome. They were Jewish background, or at least Aquila was, we think. They flee from Rome because they're kicked out of the city. They make their way to Corinth. And because God is big and God is moving and God does what God does, 
They come together with Paul. They providentially meet. Paul ends up living in their home for a while and working with them as tent makers in Corinth. And we learn here in Romans 16 that while he was there, they seem to have protected his life somehow. They risked their necks for him, it says. They also seem to have caught on to the missionary vision of Paul because they didn't stay in Corinth for very long. We know that at some point they moved to Ephesus where they discipled a young preacher there named Apollos and were instrumental in starting the church in Ephesus. And like we've mentioned several times before, Claudius, eventually he dies. And when the emperor dies, his edicts get undone by the next guy. Nice little show of power. And the Jews that were expelled from Rome now get to move back home. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they move back home. And they're connected to the church at Rome. And Paul is delighted to greet them. Oh, what stories they might share together. Say hi to Priscilla and Aquila for me. But not just Paul. And Paul's not the only one that wants to greet him. He says, all the churches of the Gentiles. You start to, to, to look around the map and start pointing out all the great things that Paul did. Priscilla and Aquila's name is also all over that map. It's all over the place. God used them in a massive way. This faithful couple had, had been a gift to so many people and places, and there's a lot of folks who benefited from their ministry, and they want to say, say hi to. They want to send their greetings. But look, uh, look at who Paul mentions next, uh, verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Uh, greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. All right, so just speaking personally as a pastor here, Paul's real proud of this one. He's really proud of this one. First guy we think that he won to Christ among the Gentiles he's been called to. That's a big deal for Paul. He probably discipled him himself. Paul is excited about Epinatus. He, he just likes this guy. Apparently he's living in Rome now. He's gotten connected to the church there and Paul wants to greet him. But Prisca and Aquila and Epinatus are not the only folks he wants to greet. Paul also keeps going. And I'll just throw this out there. We're about to go through a whole bunch of first century names, and I'm going to just roll with it, all right? Uh, my, my philosophy, whenever you're reading names out of the Bible you don't have, know how to pronounce, is just read it, and go with it, and then whatever comes out, that sticks, Okay? So that's what we're going to do. And these people are all a mixture of folks that he's either worked with in other places and who have now moved to Rome, or, or they're people he's never met before, but their faithfulness, the reputation of their faithfulness goes out beyond Rome, and Paul's heard some stories, all right? And so, he, and so even from a distance, Paul knows about these people. All right, so look at verse 6 with me. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Uh, greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow workers in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. All right, so, um, actually keep going, verse 11. Um, greet my kinsman Herodion. Greet uh, those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis who has worked hard for the Lord. 
All right, uh, stop there. All right, so Andronicus and Junia, uh, we, we re- we're not really sure who they are, but uh, they're either blood relatives of the Apostle Paul or they're just fellow Jews. He calls them kinsmen or countrymen, right? All right? But Paul says that they knew Jesus before he did and that they apparently had done a whole lot, the whole get arrested for Jesus thing together. They were fellow prisoners, right? Paul's not in prison when he's writing this. We know that he's in Corinth right now, but he had done some time by this point and maybe they hung out while they were there. I don't know. We also see Aristobulus and Narcissus. We think that both of them probably were Roman officials. Maybe. We don't know. Uh, but Paul doesn't greet them. He greets their families. Uh, there's a couple of theories for that. Um, either they were believers and were killed for it, or, or, and this is the prevailing theme, they are not believers and their families suffer persecution because of their position. So Paul wants to greet the families of these two men. But look at verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. All right, so we're fairly confident that we know who Rufus is. Like, there's a lot of people in this letter that we have no idea, but we think we know who Rufus is. We think that he's the same one that's named in Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Uh, if you don't know the story, that's during the, uh, the, the death narrative. That's the cross narrative uh, in Mark. Uh, that's when Jesus is carrying the cross to uh, Gal- Golgotha, and a, a guy is recruited, right, uh, to carry the cross for part of the way. And his name is Simon of Cyrene. And in Mark 15, Mark names Simon's sons. And that's a really weird thing to do. Rufus and Alexander, he calls them out. This is Simon of Cyrene, whose sons are Rufus and Alexander. That's a really weird thing to do in a first century letter, unless the people you're writing to know who Rufus and Alexander are. See, Mark was written in Rome to the church at Rome. The people that Mark are writing, is writing this gospel account to, they, they know Rufus personally. Paul says, Hey, say hi to Rufus for me. He says, greet Rufus and greet his mother. Apparently, before they moved to Rome, after uh, they, they were in Judea first for a while, and, and while they were in Judea, Rufus's mother had been a motherly figure to Paul. Sounds like a good mom. Look at verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Okay, so person after person, story after story, the takeaway is this. People matter. People matter. Like, 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 I know most of us usually just skim through the genealogies and greetings like this because we don't really see the value in all those names, or maybe they're really hard to pronounce, and so we just kind of shy away, just ignore it and act like it's not there. But they matter. They matter for a couple of reasons, actually. First, because we're told that every word of Scripture is God-breathed and given to us for our benefit, even the names we can't pronounce. But secondly... Because these are real people with real stories of faith and faithfulness. Some of them are well known throughout church history, but most of them, most of them have been forgotten all these generations later. 
But whether, whether we, you recognize a name or not, the theme is consistent here. Paul has a genuine love for the saints in Rome. He loves them dearly. He is excited to see them soon. He's gearing up for this journey to come see him, but he just can't wait. Say hi for me. I gotta, I gotta greet him even before I get there. He goes out of his way to greet as many of them as he can. Paul has a genuine love for brothers and sisters in Christ who are far away from him, some of them he's never met. The love is modeled. But it's not simply modeled. It's not merely modeled. It's also commanded. He tells them in verse 16 to continue to greet each other with, quote, a holy kiss. And let's just be honest, that sounds weird to us, right? That that sounds weird in our culture. And that's even under normal circumstances. In In a social distancing kind of world, that sounds downright crazy. Breaks the six foot rule pretty fast. That was an incredibly common greeting amongst family and loved ones in that culture. Probably wouldn't do that to a stranger, but family and loved ones, yeah, that's how you greeted them in that culture. And so if it was common in their culture, why then does Paul need to bring it up here? Like, aren't they kind of already doing that? I think the answer is yeah, I think they are. But he brings it up here for what I think is an incredibly important reason. It's because the church in Rome, they have a public testimony. They have a public testimony, a testimony of fellowship and of spiritual kinsmanship. They they live and they operate as if they were a family, like a for real family. Paul seems to think that their greetings ought to model that. And so while greeting with a kiss may be out of step with our current culture, what is still required of God's people is a clearly noticeable kinsmanship. The world ought to take one look at our gatherings and immediately get the message that we are a family. It ought to be unmistakable that we are united together and and a joyful affection just can't help but naturally flow out of us whenever we're together. It's impossible to miss. It should also be something we ache for when we're apart desperately want back. We did a video about a week ago now on our church Facebook group, and we we talked about some hopes that we had during this season where we can't meet physically together right now. And and one of those hopes is that that we would deeply feel the angst of this season, deeply feel how much we desperately need this. And like a lot of things in this world, you don't know what you have until it's gone, right? It's our hope that a, that a holy hunger would be created in us during this season. And then when this season is over, it would explode out of us. Unmistakable in the world. Yes, a, a kiss was common among families in their world, and that's exactly why Paul commands it for the gathered church in Rome. And so we, in the same way, we ought to do what comes natural to families in our culture. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day. But Paul's also got some words of warning for this church family, too. Look at verse 17. 
I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Verse 19, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Okay, so Paul says, watch out for and turn away from those who are teaching something other than the gospel. Regardless of whatever their ministry might look like on the outside, they may have the appearance of earthly success. They may have a bunch of people who are impressed with them. Regardless what they uh, what they look like on the outside, they may very well have the appearance of good things, but from the inside, they are actually divisive and creating spiritual obstacles for God's people. He says they serve their own appetites rather than serving the Lord. Well, how do they get away with such a thing? Paul says that they flatter you. They smooth talk their way into deceiving those who are spiritually naive. And over and over and over again throughout the Bible, we see warnings exactly like this from Jeremiah and Ezekiel condemning the false prophets who fill you with false hope to you know, those who preach peace when there is no peace. And then Jesus comes along and warns his followers, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Both Peter and Paul writing, warning us of false apostles. Even the simple truth in the Bible that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. This warning is all over the place. Men gathering them to themselves, preachers who will tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. Guys, it's as old as history itself. It's an ancient problem. It's just easier now because of TV and the internet. You can get it on demand. So how do we navigate this? What do we do with this? How do we guard ourselves against this? Well, there are several other important tests to, to figure out if you're listening to a false teacher. I, I don't want to negate those other things. But sometimes, honestly, sometimes the simplest test is just to ask yourself the question of whether or not you ever hear anything from them that you don't like. Like, it really could be that simple. It, it, it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It really doesn't. Whether you're new to the game or you've been around for 80 years and you're waiting for Jesus to take you home. Right? It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. This side of heaven, the Bible is going to call out your junk. Always. And so it's not automatic, not at all, but simply start by asking yourself, does, does the sinful side of me still war against some of this stuff? Does their preaching reveal ungodly and unfleshly things in me, uh, fleshly things in me that, that still need to be put to death? Or am, I, or am I caught up in enjoying how much this preacher and his God delight in me? Ask yourself those questions. Simple questions. But there's also a positive angle of addressing this. Look at verse 19 again. For your obedience is known to all. Paul commends them for their obedience. 
Hey, hey, you want to know an incredibly simple way, the best way even to guard yourself from false gospels? Become intimately familiar with the real one. With the real one. You know that age-old illustration? It gets thrown out as often as possible, even around here. But uh, you know how you learn to spot counterfeit money? It's by knowing the real thing better than the counterfeiter does. That's how that works. Being, by being so familiar with it that the counterfeit stands out like a sore thumb. It's immediately, immediately noticeable. It's the same with the gospel. Same truth. Be so familiar with the gospel. Wrap your entire life in it and around it. Remind yourself of it daily. You know, as if you didn't need to do that for a thousand other reasons. Anyways, be so familiar with the true gospel that counterfeits, man, they reek of falsehood to you. They're ugly and unappealing. Paul gets to celebrate that in the Roman church. He celebrates that. He rejoices over them, he says. Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. All right, so the boys running with Paul, they want to say hi to. Paul's got disciples. He's working with these guys. They want to greet the, the folks in Rome. Verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Wait, what? Who's Tertius? Haven't we been talking about Paul this whole time? Now, Tertius is a scribe. He's a scribe. Paul is dictating this letter to him, and Tertius kind of shoehorns his greeting in there. Hi, I'm Tertius, guys. I say hi to. Not only would this be a common thing among important letters in the ancient world, but we also know that Paul struggled with terrible eyesight, and there's some theories that he also struggled with some pretty severe nerve problems, too. Um, you just can't take that many beatings without it having some long-term effects. And so it was physically difficult for Paul to write a letter. And so most of his letters are written by scribes. In this case, Tertius. He says hi. Look at verse 23. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. All right, uh, so the mention of Gaius here is how we're pretty confident that Paul is in Corinth when he writes this letter. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 1.14, we're told there uh, that Gaius was one of only two people that Paul baptized himself while he was in Corinth. All right, And so we think that Paul is living with him right now and that part of the Corinthian church is meeting in his home. That's how it works. And so Gaius is an important guy. He's hanging out with Gaius. Gaius says, hi. Look at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept uh, secret for long ages, verse 26, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of, a, of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Guys, that's one sentence. That's a lot of weird breaths. One sentence. Thanks, Paul. All right, so... The picture, the picture that we've been using throughout this series to wrap our heads around Paul's logical argument is that of a skyscraper, right? And so we started out in week one, a year ago now, saying that the only appropriate foundation for such a massive deal, for such a massive structure and undertaking would be the character of God himself. 
The only one who is resolute enough, the only one who is eternal enough to carry the weight of the gospel is Jesus. And over the last several months, Paul has built that skyscraper. He's given it a a superstructure, salvation by grace through faith. He's attached all the surrounding structures. He's answered all the questions that pop up. Well, what about such and such? And and how does this affect so and so? He's answered all those questions. He's wrapped this thing in the practical facade. How do we live in light of these eternal truths? And now it's time to cap this thing off with the pretty little antenna on the top. The thing that everyone's going to celebrate about this skyscraper The thing that everyone's going to have the mental picture of whenever they think of the gospel skyscraper. The thing that's going to cause everybody to ooh and ah. Paul says that one thing is Jesus and his glory. Jesus and his glory. (laughs) Guys, the only thing that is worthy and capable of being the gospel's foundation is at the very same time the only thing that is worthy and capable of being the gospel's ultimate end. Jesus gets to be both. He's big enough to do it. He is the one who strengthens you. He is the one who is revealing the mystery kept hidden for ages, but is now being joyfully declared to the nations. He is the one who brings about obedience of faith. He is the one with true wisdom, and he is the one who will receive glory forevermore because of it. Jesus. Jesus. And so if you're watching this and you don't know Jesus yet, listen, you need to. Oh, you need to. Paul has laid out his argument. You need to know Jesus right now. Your sin separates you from a holy God. It separates you from it. It it, it rightfully deserves his wrath. And, And he who is infinitely just will give to all exactly what they deserve. He will not fail. He has never failed to act justly. But God is not only just, he is also the great justifier. He made a way where there was no way. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a substitute to pay the debt for your sin. And he was raised from the dead as a vindication of his perfect righteousness. A righteousness that he is willing to share with you. Oh, he is willing. So now the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and faith. And you can do that this morning. Yes, even through a computer screen. God's not slowed down by that. You kidding me? He knows you. He loves you. He is right there with you. Call upon him to save you. He will hear. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's That's a time for you to respond to God's word and respond to the gospel's call. Under normal circumstances, I'll be standing down at the front while we sing, calling you to come forward. We, we can't do that today. I wish we could, but we can't. But that doesn't mean we can't talk. That doesn't mean you're on your own. Call me, email me this afternoon. I'd love to walk you through what that response, that, those steps of repentance and faith look like. I'd, I'd love to help you there. If you're watching this and you're already a follower of Jesus, We're called to respond to God's word too, and we do that by repenting of sin 
repenting of sin and leaning into what God reveals about himself in Romans 16. He is the one that knows your name and calls you his own. He's the one who strengthens you. He's the one who helps you walk in obedience. He's the one who calls you to find your rest in his good news. And let's be honest, that's a, that's a rest that sounds a lot more attractive when all of the lesser stuff we place our hope in gets ripped away from us. I need that rest. I need it every day, but I'm very aware of it this week. I need that rest. You can respond to his word by leaning into God. But listen, you can also respond in some other ways. Maybe, maybe it's to take the step of obedience by following Jesus in baptism. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you've never done what he's commanded you to do. Let's talk about that. There's coming a day when we won't be shut up and talking to each other over the internet. We can dunk you in some water. It'll be a good day. Maybe it's by joining this church family. Maybe your response is by answering the call uh, of missions in your heart and life, the thing that God has put in front of you. Maybe it's finally saying yes to that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'd love to hear from you this week and help you walk through those next steps. But right now, let's all respond to God's word this morning. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Romans 16. Thank you for a list of names that are hard to pronounce. God, you were working powerfully then, and you were working just as powerfully today. Real people with real stories of faith and faithfulness. God, would you help us walk faithfully in this season? Now, there's a part of me that thinks that it's harder now, but there's also a big part of me that thinks it's a lot easier now. You've kind of cleared some things out of our way. God, would you use your church in this season, similar to the way you used the church in Rome? People come, people go, but the testimony goes out. Those around the church, both far and near, can't miss what you're doing. So would you do that even today? As the church is scattered around in all of our different homes across different cities in our state, as we have friends and loved ones watching from a long way away, the testimony of Nashua Baptist Church go forth for your glory. It would be unmistakable. Would you create a longing in us for the day when we get to gather together again? God, for those who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known right now? Would you open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know? You are good. You are mighty to save. And so you, would you show off a little bit of your goodness this morning?
Help us respond well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you sing with us his mercies more one last time?